Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk where we talk about people we Jesus Christ. You wanna run it back? Thanks, thanks. Uh, somebody else just wanna take this from me uh, and take this crown off of my head. It is so heavy. Uh, where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find them on Twitter at Trilon Cinema. And you can find them at Trilon.org to purchase tickets for showings whenever those happen again, merch, and a bunch of other cool, fun ways to support the Trilon. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. I am... Oh, man, I forgot the bit. I'm a Medford man, Medford, Oregon. And you can find me at Nintendoofus. Very good, Jason. I'm Cody Narvison, and I don't know why they always put what I want on the top shelf, uh, but you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Hold on to your cheap cigar. I'm Harry, and you can find me at Chitake Harry. I'm Aaron, and I don't like matches. They always explode in my pocket, and you can find me on Twitter, uh, hiatus, at RB Please. I know we have guests to introduce, but holy shit, Aaron and Harry both remembered the bit. All four of us remembered the bit, and I think that's the first time that's happened. Hey, Jason. This is a blessed day. Hey, Jason, you're not from fucking Medford, Oregon, dude. Wow. Yeah. We'll, so take, this, we'll take this off come mic. Come for me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to mute you. Thank you. I'm pretty sure you're from Michigan. I'm going to mute you. Thank you. Uh, and re- re- joining us today are two very special guests. Uh, returning from our episodes on, uh, excuse me, it was Trilove in the Time of Corona, episode nine, Rebels of the Neon God, and episode 55 on Paris, Texas. We have Jenny Eckerson joining the podcast again. Hello, Jenny. Hi. Thanks for having me back. Um, I am thrilled to be here. With my friend, who you'll introduce next. Uh, thank you for introducing my introduction of your friend, who is, of course, Griffin Filipich, returning from our episode 49 on Ninochka. Hello, Griffin. Hello. Two intros. I'm, I'm feeling spoiled. Thank you. Thank you. It for was kind of like, th- yeah, it was kind of like three, maybe two and a half, because I said that I had to introduce our guests and I stopped myself from introducing our guests. And then your friend introduced you as a guest and then I introduced you as a guest. So it's kind of like, kind of kind of comes out in the wash it's uh, really the first return that we get really excited about when we have a person on for the second time third time you know that's whatever that's fine that's basically when aaron became a regular but it's the, <laughs> it's that first return that we really care about so thank you so much yeah Griffin. we got uh, and also um jenny yeah i feel loved thank you <laughs> We got to strike while that iron is hot. You understand. It's content production. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about Double Indemnity, a 1944 film directed by Billy Wilder. Uh, Aaron's going to tell us a little bit about it. Yes. Uh, Double Indemnity, directed by Billy Wilder, co-written by Wilder and uh, hard-boiled detective uh, author Raymond Chandler, based on James N. Cain's uh, novella of the same name from the year prior, 1943. Film stars Fred McMurray as Walter Neff, an insurance salesman who meets the alluring Phyllis Diedrichson, played by Barbara Stanwyck, uh, the housewife of a formerly successful businessman that Fred is looking to track down in order to uh, renew an auto insurance policy. 
Phyllis suspiciously asks Fred if it might be possible to take out a life insurance policy on her husband without his knowledge. Fred correctly assumes that she is planning his murder, but eventually he comes around to the idea of helping her. After the crime, they struggle to keep their story straight as Fred's friend and company claims adjuster, Barton Keyes, played by Edward G. Robinson, gets closer and closer to the truth. Uh, critically and commercially successful on release, Double Indemnity garnered seven Academy Award nominations for Best Picture, Director, Actress, Best Writing Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Black and White, Best Music, Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture, and Best Sound Recording. Uh, it unfortunately won none of these, um, but its influence has lived on as a foundational film in the noir genre. All of this is true. Uh, Jenny and Griffin, what we do at this point is we give a quick summary of what we thought about the movie, just a few thoughts, and then we can build from there for the rest of the episode. Uh, mine are that we did not have enough uh, Edward G. Robinson. We did not have enough keys. Um, I believe this is the second or third time I've seen this movie, the second having been uh, probably at the Heights when it played a couple of years back when I went with oh. Harry and Aaron. Yeah, I was wondering who went with me to that. So thank yes. you for reminding me. Wow, indelible in his mind we are. Um, anyway, this uh, I remembered that I saw the movie. It matters to Billy Wilder. What thirty years dead or something like that? Uh, so I really, obviously, it's a classic. Nobody can really argue that it's just a very solidly made movie. Um, uh, I, I want to know how to strike matches against my thumb. Um, that looks both painful and really cool. And I do not think that we got enough Edward G. Robinson. I think he's very pivotal in this movie. Uh, and I do not think that, uh, that we saw him enough on screen. So I think Cody takes next. I think so. Um, this was my second time seeing this movie. Uh, the first time was about five years ago. I did not see it at the Heights. Um, I must have been busy that day. I yeah, that I think before. I think that's what it was. You were busy that day. Sure. Um, and I didn't retain a ton of relevant information about Double Indemnity uh, from then to now. Um, like literally, literally, I remember the, that the story revolves around insurance fraud um, because that's in the title. Uh, and I remembered uh, Phyllis Dietrichson's hairdo. And that's basically it. And that's not necessarily a condemnation of the movie because I'm not great at retaining that kind of stuff anyway. Um, that is literally how Cody's noties as a bit became a thing. Um but anyway, having revisited Double Indemnity last night, I guess I don't know if I'm viewing this movie any differently uh, right now um, than I did from the first time. I did really enjoy this as an exploration of noir and the traits that people have come to associate with noir. Um, many scenes were were beautifully lit and engulfed in very uh, specific tone creating shadows. Um, I'm thinking mostly about the scenes in the Dietrichson living room. Those really stood out to me. Walter Neff as a character and as a narrator, um, those were things that worked for me. Uh, Phyllis Dietrichson's uh, Dietrichson rather as the femme fatale and um, Barbara Stanwyck's portrayal of her were things that really worked for me. I imagine we'll talk about her a lot more uh, in the ensuing minutes. Um, Double Indemnity also seemed to me like it was gesturing at a number of different um, peripheral I uh, ideas. Um, the pattern of women in a specific family or specific situation being subjected to volatile men. Um, the dangers of being uh, a tourist in the affairs of a fractured family, the sort of theme we see with this insurance company and maybe every insurance company. I don't really know how insurance companies work, um, but they plainly do not want to sell to people in lower classes, people that Mr. Norton, um, the company's head or one of its heads uh, would deem as having like risky lifestyles. Uh, these all felt like good and smart things to include. Um, I didn't really didn't quite feel that any of them were explored to their uh, potential. Uh, but I totally accept that it could be my failing for either missing something or for assuming that there would be 
something else like that I could sort of hang my hat on. Um, but that's sort of where I'm at now. This uh, is a good movie. Um, I don't know whether or not I will um, check in with it again later uh, in my life, but anything is possible. Um, but now I will uh, pass the ball to Harry so that uh, he can run with it. Hey, good callback. I'm probably going to do exactly with this ball what, uh, well, what's his name with the big office did, although I don't have a big office. Um, we've already litigated uh, when I've seen this movie. Uh, it's my second time. Um, I'll echo some of what Cody said. I think you said a really interesting thing about um, the class distinctions in this movie. I think there's sort of a key to that in Raymond Chandler's biography, which we can go into, that makes that really interesting. It's really interesting in particular that um, Chandler didn't write the novel upon which this is based. He just wrote the screenplay. That's kind of unusual because he's a really famous um, hard-boiled detective um, novelist as well. And a lot of his most famous movies were also based on novels of his, like The Big Sleep. Um, I like this movie a lot because I'm a real sucker for Chandler's writing. Um, but it, it's interesting in that I think it also has some of the flaws that I would typify both noir and Chandler's writing as having. Um, I don't love the the second half of this movie. I find the first half much more compelling. Um, I think that the final scene in particular kind of rubs me the wrong way. It, it, it's a little bit melodramatic for my taste. Um, I don't think that the subplot necessarily worked for me all that well. Um, despite the fact that I think that the class distinctions actually kind of do and that a lot of the themes of this, that this movie was playing with really came to the forefront for me more than they did the first time I saw it. Um, I don't love some of the writing because I think some of it is a little too over the top. Um, I agree that uh, Edward G. Robinson is very good in this role, but I don't love his characterization at some points. It just felt like, like this is, I don't know. It was over the top for noir for me, I guess. Um, although it was delightful to watch. So I guess I, I have mixed opinions about this movie, despite the fact that like, I would never suggest that it's anything less than the classic that it deserves to be known as, I guess. Um, it, it still really works. Right. And I think that, uh, the fact that it really works only sort of like highlights the ways in which it doesn't work for me, which are, um, interesting in and of themselves, I guess. Uh, and now I'm passing the ball to continue this metaphor over to Aaron. Uh, I am, I am willing to, uh, go to violent ends in order to back up, uh, my main man, Edward G. Robinson here. Uh, he is great in this movie. Uh, I am unfortunately a different state as Harry, but when I see Harry in person, I will be, uh, fighting him. Uh, over those hard Eddie words. gang, Eddie gang. He's, he's, he's great. Yeah. Barton keys is clearly, he's chewing up the scenery. I get what, I get what Harry is saying, of course. Uh, but I, I don't know. I, I love that character, uh, very much. Um, I will say I, I, you know, I think we have two very wonderful guests who are going to, uh, probably dig into some of the themes uh, of this later. I will do that as well. So I'll just quickly say, uh, this movie, um, maybe more than, any that I've seen in quarantine has made me wish to go to a theater as we've already talked about. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Which is a, uh, I I like the Heights a lot. It's, it's kind of like a standard old person movie theater. It's very long. They play mostly kind of old, you know, they play Hitchcock films. They play like a Christmas Carol. Um, They're not getting too artistic, but they play nice old movies that you can go and watch and uh, grab an ice cream from the Dairy Queen next door beforehand. Um, And I enjoy that experience a lot. Um, I actually remembered a lot of this movie and this movie for me, uh, I, I think I, I watched this on streaming and I rented it on my PlayStation. And uh, because I have a TV that's like fine, but not great, uh, often uh, artifacts get bleed into 
uh, the black colors of uh, something that I'm watching. And because this film is letterboxed in 1.37 to 1 uh, aspect ratio, um, there is a lot of black on the left of the screen and the right of the screen. And because I had like pressed the start button on my PlayStation for like 30 minutes of this movie on the far left of the screen, there were just like the words like Kratos is coming to Fortnite season five uh, for like 30 minutes, which is not an optimal way to watch. Well, that was that was in mine, too. That was in yours too. Okay, maybe that's just a part of the movie. I yeah, I have the, the criteria. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's like I don't know. You said movies are never finished; they're abandoned. Yeah, <laughs> I. I th- it was kind of bumming me out for a lot of the runtime of this film. Um, but I think apart from that, uh, you know, I think a lot of that stands in contrast to my viewing experience because this movie does look so good. It is so well lit. Um, you know, I think there's there's kind of editing things here and there, but for the most part, it's a much, much more uh, polished movie than the other Stan Mc movie we watched. Sorry, wrong number. It, this is a very, uh, this is like a very classic movie to me. Um, and I think I appreciated it as that. I think I maybe shared some of the issues that, that Harry uh, and Cody alluded to, but um, I had a good time with us. Uh, glad uh, I was able to catch up with it again. All right. So Jenny and Griffin in that order, give us your quick thoughts. So I rewatched the first half of the movie just before this podcast, but um, about a month or two ago, I watched it for the first time because I had another friend who just said that he watched it and he loved it because his favorite crime is insurance crime. (laughs) So I I don't know that there's a whole rich genre of insurance crime. Maybe it was a joke, but uh, I will chime in later with my insurance thoughts because I am still a licensed insurance agent among my many talents. So I'll, I'll come back around with that. But Otherwise, I was just really, um, it's kind of one of those movies where I'm like, oh, this is like what started off all of these different tropes amongst what noirs have come to be. And, uh, you know, the, the fast talking, all the babies and, and just how every single line is delivered, like, uh, like firing off hot, hot takes like tweets, you know, like every single line is delivered with such like exceptional pompousness. It's incredible. But um Really, I was just so surprised as I wrote in my short letterbox review some month or two ago that he really just explains his horny antics to us for that entire runtime. I I can't believe this movie got made. (laughs) (laughs) Which is itself a a trope of noir. Being horny? Oh, yeah. Being horny and explaining. Yeah. Go ahead, Griffin. (laughs) Now that I've set you up. This is my cue, yes, I believe. This is why I was brought in. Um, no, uh, it's fun. When Jenny asked me if I wanted to join for this movie, it was funny because I had just sent a link of that early conversation where they talk about uh, speeding in, in California. What, like, what's the speed limit? Which is a great example of a kind of horny repartee that, that Jenny's talking about. And I had just sent a link of that to a friend of mine who is like, She's starting to write romance fiction um, and, and, and she's, she wants to write a novel, but is working right now on like short, very short stories, almost like micro stories in that genre. And she, we were talking about it and she kept saying like, I want it. I don't want, like want to write erotic fiction. Like that's a big staple of the genre and I'm not so interested in that, but I just want it to be very saucy. And that's the, the word she kept coming back to. And I was thinking like, oh, there's so much great, you know, pre-code um, either uh, 
comedies that, 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 that get into like really saucy kind of back and forth like that. But then when I started looking around and I sent her a bunch of clips, but the, the one from double indemnity was the one that, and she hadn't seen any of these movies. I don't think. And that was the one that she was like, Oh yeah, I'm definitely trying to write a scene like that now that I've watched that clip. So this is total t- tangent. This is not, these were not my major takeaways, but it's just funny that you guys then came to me like a couple of days later and asking if I wanted to talk about this movie. And yeah, this yeah, is my, this is my second time watching it. And like the inevitability of what is going to happen to them is what stuck out to me most this time. Like, yeah, it's imbued with this sense. Like it's always going to happen because of the structure where it's him. Uh, you know, you know that he's confessing. And so that's built in, in the structure and early on. And I, especially in my first watch, I found that kind of annoying when someone's telling you like, I didn't, I don't know why, but it just had to happen and I had to do it. And it's like, well, no, you didn't. So, but early on, I found it annoying as I had in previous watches. I loved it both times I watched it, but still you get a little, it rubs you the wrong way a little bit. But then at the end of the movie, I found that very powerful, this sense of like, um, it's always going to come down on them. So that, that was one of my big things. Yeah. I'm not sure why Aaron put his hand down, but I, I, I approve definitely of like sending your friend, this type of, of of writing and dialogue, the dialogue is like a great, I guess, a great equalizer among a lot of, and, and it sort of plays a little bit to the class uh, uh, disparities that that uh, Aaron, excuse me, Harry was talking about as well. But the way that people talk in this movie is clearly not a way that people have ever talked in any real life situation ever, and it is just that heightened sense of reality that gives those moments drama. And, and like Jenny was, and both of you were saying, just like a general horniness about things like even when they're not saying things that are explicit even when they're not talking about like going 90 in a 45 zone you just like every line is dripping with some form of irony or like sexually charged language so something i was thinking about on this watch uh was there's just like almost every line of dialogue for him when he first um sees barbara stanwick is just like how much he thirsts after her and he can't like control it but I thought it was interesting. So there's just a small line about like how I wish this silly staircase would get out from between us. And it's just like to characterize a staircase as silly, but when it's like just so physical and grounding and like, just like an element of reality. Whereas like uh, he's just delivering all of these lines where he's like suspended out of his reality, which I don't know, maybe there's some parallels here to talk about what the word indemnity means, which is to return to its, current state or previous state so he's kind of operating out of this like imaginary zone with all of his ways of like fantasizing that they could be together from the moment he saw her and in insurance bringing it back to it is kind of like thinking that uh you know no matter what could happen you'll you'll be brought back to your current state or something like that yeah, two things about that. That's a really good point. Um, first of all, like that's a recurring motif, that sensuality, right? It's like when he first enters their um, her her home, he has to describe it both in narration and as we see it walking up. Usually that bugs me. It didn't this time because I think the narration is actually doing something where it's it's focusing on what stood out to Walter himself. Um, which again, that comes up in the staircase. He also talks about how honeysuckle was something he smelled and how honeysuckle came to be associated with so many different senses. This is a very like sensual movie. He's also intoxicated by her perfume. It comes up over and over again. There's a very novelistic sense of describing different sensations rather than just visual sensations, but it also has that effect of 
bringing you into this like fantasy world that he's a part of. Um, that's something that's really that characterizes noir for me a lot is the irony, right? Of like there are these people who talk like this and they act like this and you would think they would be sort of want to be sophisticates, right? With their suits and their fast talking and the way that they're always playing all of the angles. They're also just very simplistic people. They're very sensual people. They're just horny, right? Uh, I just watched Miller's crossing. That's a great example of this. Um, Brick, the uh, Rian Johnson movie, is also a great example of this, where they just cast a noir movie in high school, and it still works, because essentially all noir protagonists are just high school students anyway, because they're just horny kids in the end. Um, and I think that that the narration that you're describing, Jenny, is like perfect for that. And it sort of factors in also with what Griffin was saying about the sort of like sort of Damocles inevitability that hangs over this movie, where like at the beginning of this movie, Walter steps into this sensual dream world. But as the movie goes on, the scenes start to show and he becomes more and more paranoid and afraid that that's coming to an end. And we ride that out with him, which is why the tension increases so organically in this movie and why I think the narration works to the extent that it does is because we can follow that interiority through to the end and it works really um, effectively in that way. Yeah, I, I this is totally just kind of coming with me, coming to me and I'm sure a film historian would hit me over the head for this, but I, I think that there is something about uh, as Griffin brought up, Griffin brought up the Hayes code earlier, right? Which was restrictions placed on what films could kind of show and portray, uh, you know, related to violence and sexuality and drug use and things of that nature. I do kind of think that noir specifically like early noir was so much more horny because you specifically could not show a lot of the things that were obviously going on behind the scenes. And that for me personally, I associate like neo-noir and like later noir, like into the fifties and sixties and, and moving forward is like a lot less horny because as restrictions started to ease, you could finally just show the stuff that obviously was being hinted toward the entire time. I, I don't think there's a movie that is like, has a more ridiculous clash between what is obviously going on and what is being shown due to restrictions with the Hayes Code than this movie. Um, this is a movie about like this kind of everyday insurance salesman uh, who agrees to help kill this woman's husband and then they run away with the money together, but they are not depicted as having sex or having had sex it's, it's like ludicrous, right? It's like, if I'm going to help kill your husband, I would hope we are at least doing something, right? But it is never portrayed and it's like kind of comical to a certain extent. But what that means is that every single part of this movie is then just like the horniest thing. Even like the, the spaces between people, how close they stand, like every single aspect of this film is like just dripping with that. I was more uncomfortable listening to this dude describe that anklet than I've ever been uncomfortable listening to anyone it's, describe any fetish in any movie. So horny. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. We're getting a little bit at like the, I mean, clearly, uh, Jenny brought up the, like the, the, the sort of background to indemnity itself. Um, and there's always like the, the, the very title of the film, Double Indemnity, is like it is very much about like two sides to every person and sort of that duplicity of their performances that they are giving in their everyday and professional lives, uh, which is like part of why I think that uh, the character of keys is not underutilized. Like he is exactly where he needs to be in the movie, but just, I wish I would have seen more of him in a weird way. Um, you know, these characters are specifically keys and Neff, like 
he's think yeah, like he's very confident. He's got 23 years of experience under his belt, but he's like, you know, the great irony there is that he can't see the murderer right under his nose. Who's like closer to him than, than, the, than across the desk. Uh, like he says at the end of the movie and, uh, Neff himself thinks that he's like, I, I guess we don't get a whole lot of flavor for what his life was like before the start of this movie, just that he's very experienced at it, but he thinks he's like an everyday insurance salesman who's just like able to get by on doing what he wants. Uh, but it turns out, out that inside of him, he's got like the capacity to murder, right? Uh, that duality of each character is not a new um, observation, I'm sure about this movie, just one that sticks out to me very strongly and is like really supported by what everybody's saying here about how people speak and sort of their intentions through the way they speak and all that kind of stuff. What I was thinking about um, when you're bringing up this like duplicity of, of these characters is also that, you know, uh, Keyes makes it a point to say that he was almost married, but then the little man inside him said that he needed to look into the background of his soon to be wife. So it, it, there's kind of like that clue into there where we would have expected Neff to look into the background of his soon to be runaway new bride or whatever they were going to end up doing there. And, and I, I think it's kind of interesting that it's like the, the, the willful choice to not see anything, but the, the surface level, which is also like a huge thing in noir where everyone's just so stoic. But since this movie has the, the running narration, we get to see how he's like hysterical inside, essentially that he was so overcome with these early emotions and being drawn in and then later how he's kind of like exasperated and just like feeling so guilty. So it's kind of like he, he was also um, just showing like a strong face this entire time and not choosing to like look back. But yeah, the fact that Neff has no prior history, like is he this horny at every single house he goes to? Like, I don't really know what's going on. (laughs) Um, I, I do think that the, there is like a remarkably large amount of extremely subtle characterization uh, for all of these characters. I think uh, Keys in particular, I think is is very subtly done. I think just the the comparison between him and Neff and just their usage of matches, right? The fact that that uh, Neff always has to pull out a match in order to light Keys's uh, cigar cigarette. Um, because Keyes very pointedly said, and I quoted this at the beginning of the episode, but he very pointedly says he doesn't like matches. They always explode in his pocket, right? Like Keyes is not someone who plays around with that sort of volatility. He is someone who plays with facts and statistics and figures. And Neff, of course, Neff would have matches on him. Neff loves playing with fire. He loves doing that shit. And that's why he gets burned at the end of the movie. At one point, he lights uh, a cigar when the whole point of the scene is that he's supposed to be cool under pressure, right? And he can still pull that off. And it's like, holy shit. Yeah, that's interesting. I I was interested in what Jenny said about um, Keys being unmarried because that's what the double in double indemnity became like uh, be- came to mean for me as I was watching it is how yoked to each other they seem to be uh, based on very little. Like they decide they're in it together, and at a certain point they're in it too deep, but that that feeling of them being like yoked to each other, you feel it like very powerfully just from the moment they conceive of the plan, not before they're in too deep, like, or um, before they're in too deep, rather not when they're in too deep. And there's something about that where they for each other were protection because he has it in it. And I, I don't know anything about committing a murder, but like his belief, I think that he professes early on is like, you can't do it with one. You got to have two. And, uh, and I don't know, there was something 
interesting about that and and thinking about keys as unmarried makes me think of of uh the two the two leads here McMurray and Stanwick like as they enter a marriage together and this weird marriage that's actually loveless you know people talk about the motivations here and and I think we can talk a little bit about that that's what interested me most ultimately on this watch is that uh love and money are what are like the surface motivations but they don't seem to actually be there when by by the time you get to the end you realize that they were not uh that there there was something else for each of them here that that's harder to put your finger on right it was kind of all a sham uh what you're saying about these characters being yoked to one another is like obviously uh between neff and dietrich there's that like surface level it turns out to be very shallow starts out as like oh they're in a romantic relationship they're going to love each other once they're once the evil husband is gone and slowly that starts to crumble it's all a sham but uh to me like that's what you're saying makes me think of how i was feeling about the characters throughout the movie which is that obviously they're it's a very like quick start for neff and dietrich like they're very hot and heavy real quick within the first 20 minutes or so they've sort of like hatched the idea of a of, of this murderous plot and uh, and you start to realize that there is a dependency there, that there is, um, you know, not all the trust that they need, but there is that sort of like uh, manufactured and forced dependency with specifically with respect to Keys and Neff. We don't need to get into this right now, but I hope we do at some point with respect to Keys and Neff. They have that same thing. They are also, as Griffin said, yoked to one another. They just don't at least Neff doesn't realize it until the very end. And that they're as much a couple as the main couple. Right, exactly. And that is like. Uh, when Aaron was talking about how uh, Keys has to end up lighting Neff's uh, cigar or cigarette at the end of the film, it's like the whole movie he's been doing it for Keys. Neff finally has it done for him right at the end after it's all too late, after everything's come down crumbling, he realizes how dependent he was on this other person, how dependent his plan was, how dependent his career has been. And like their witty repartee, like under, excuse me, um, sort of like guys is a real genuine, uh, not explicitly romantic, but a love for one another. That's only like only made clear is almost like stinger level. You know, like the last words in this movie are, I love you too. And, and then credits, I, I don't know. It's like all of that stuff baking as the movie went on, uh, is, is coming up as you guys are mentioning how like these characters are codependent in like sick or really sweet ways and how they don't realize which one it is until it's too late. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I like that Keys is not a perfect character. I think that one thing that a lot of uh, imitators of of this film or this kind of film uh, does is that or do is that those films often have uh, the Keys figure be entirely perfect, like generally uh, free of any sort of flaws. Where Keys's flaw is that he loves Neff so much and that he views him as such a good partner. Um, I think that does tie into what Jenny was talking about with him not being married. Um, you know, Keys does not solve the crime at the end of the day, right? He completely overlooks that Neff is the one who is clearly, uh, you know, working with Diedrichson in order to kill her husband, which if you actually think about Keyes' character is the sort of thing that somebody like Keyes should have figured out from the get go. It is, is the thing that he should have figured obvious. out. That's the yes. guy that he's the guy that does that. He is the guy who has all of the information, who has all of the power, who is clearly the most related link to this person, but he's unable to see that because of his relationship with him. Um, that's like, I think, brilliantly done um, in this movie. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I like I like the Keys character uh, a lot. I will stop ranting about Keys now, I think. 
Uh, I just found him unsubtle, basically. That's all. That's the only problem yeah. I've got with yeah. him. Um, anyway, uh, I really like what Griffin said about um, the duplicity of all of these relationships. I would go further uh, to what Jason said about how um, you never really know which is which. Uh, it always ends up being the opposite the exact opposite of the way it's depicted, right? I mean, like, uh, Phyllis, she hates her husband because, quote, he's never nice to her. And Walter and uh, Phyllis are supposed to be crazy about one another. Turns out they hate each other. Meanwhile, Key is, is this guy, he's this bullish dude who uh, is supposed to be a heart of stone cynic, right? He's supposed to have been rendered so cynical by his 23 years in the business that he can't love anymore. But the great irony of his character, as you pointed out, Aaron, is that he loves Walter in the end. Um, I think that that Keyes is sort of like the heriophant of the insurance business in a really fascinating way, right? Where like he repeatedly alludes to the 23 years experience while Walter has 11 years experience. He's clearly the protege. He's clearly growing toward what Keyes is. I think it's really important that we understand that what Keyes is, is not a good thing, right? I mean, like, I, I understand that, like, there was there were cultural differences in uh, the 1940s, but still, Keyes describing what he did to his bride-to-be is supposed to be a terrible thing, right? That's fucked up. He said that he broke up with this woman because she dyed her hair and she had a manic depressive brother. Like, this dude's a fucking asshole. And I, like, I think it's kind of important that he's a fucking asshole, right? And it's supposed to show the way that being inside the insurance game is so, excuse me, I'm sorry, Jenny, I don't, I don't believe this is true about you, but it, it's, it deteriorates the soul, right? And I think that that's something that, that really, um, is true of a lot of Chandler's fiction because Chandler was like an anti-communist detective who ended up being so hateful of his profession, even though he really loved it, that he wound up writing detective fiction instead um, and ended up being um, a, a pretty like notable leftist himself after working with, I believe, maybe the Pinkertons. Uh, I don't I need to study a little bit more, but there, there's like a whole through line here, right, about how the, the call was coming from inside the building. It's like it's never the outside enemy. It's always the system itself. Walter was built into being a murderer by the insurance business, by the fact that he thought he could carry it off. I think that's why um, the double and double indemnity also means to me um, the fact that Walter was motivated not just by Phyllis and in the end less by Phyllis, as Griffin, you pointed out, than by the idea that he could carry it off. I mean, he even prompts double indemnity to get $100,000 instead of $50,000 just out of greed, apparently, just because he thought he could do it straight down the line, right? And his ego actually is more of a factor in pulling this off than Phyllis ever was. And in the, fa in the end, he shoots her, right? He didn't love her at all. Even after she falls in love with him, it was always about the game and it was always about beating the system that was beating him. And I think that that's sort of what this this movie is driving at in terms of its criticisms of um, systems of capitalist systems of American systems, um, et cetera, in a really interesting way. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what stuck out to me watching it this time was him just wanting to beat the system. But what didn't occur to me until I, and, and you pointed it out just now, but it's also made much plainer in the book. I read like half of the book too in, in prep for this, but I wasn't able to make it all the way through, but it does end a little differently. And I, I, I looked ahead to the ending, but in the book, he lays, he says, and this is why the book is not as good because it has these two strands, but it doesn't negotiate them. Well, I don't think like 
it doesn't care to make sense of the fact that he has different motivations. It's just like, oh, he's got this motivation, he's got that motivation. And one of them is that he's just totally desensitized to this kind of crime, I guess, because insurance fraud is so rampant. And he just sees stuff like this all the time. And he does compare himself early in the book to a like uh, a casino worker. And there's... yeah, that's very famously the speech in this one as well, right? Yeah. But yeah. And he says, after you've watched it a while, he's talking, he's like comparing himself to someone who works in a casino. Ask yourself how he might, how much he would care if you went out and plugged yourself in the head. His eyes might drop when he heard the shot, uh, but it wouldn't be from worry whether you lived or died. It would be to make sure that you didn't leave a bet on the table that he would have, an, that he would have to cash for your estate. He, no, he wouldn't care. Not that baby. He says baby too. So drink. I guess. Jesus fucking Christ. Um, so th- like, Yikes. but then later in the book, he then says in trying, and he's like, I know you think I'm crazy, but you, you never saw a dame like this or whatever. So it's like, wait, which one is it? Cause uh, it, it, <laughs> but it, but it planted the seeds of like those two strands. And I think what the movie does really well, is like isolate and draw you in with thinking that it's the femme fatale that he just couldn't resist but then like slowly deteriorates that. And when you're left with nothing, like that's so unsettling by the end. Uh, That's what is, what's struck me as so great this time. Yeah. Not to, not to go back. We talked about this a little bit uh, on the sorry, wrong number episode, not to go back to like my favorite, favorite trope in uh, noir, but this is absolutely a story with an unreliable narrator. It's not unreliable in nature of like, uh, the actual uh, sequence of events being wrong or anything like that. It is simply that this character draws you into his point of view and you are unable to see the truth of the matter because you are sucked into what he is telling you. I think that by the end of the film, you kind of have to come away uh, with the impression that Walter Neff is, if not a greater villain than Phyllis Diedrichson, then at least just as much of one. Um, he's certainly cold and calculating in a different way. I mean, she is too, right? And it, it kind of fills in her backstory uh, with right, but, her but husband. She, he, could, he could shoot her to death where he yes, could, or she, no. she couldn't shoot him to death, right? That's the thing, right? He, she shoots him one time and then she very distinctly says, I didn't think I loved you until I realized I couldn't shoot a second time. He then takes the gun and shoots her twice in a row like that, just instantly, right? Um what a great scene, right? And that is demonstrating yeah. that, like, yeah, maybe you could argue who is, like, the bad guy of this movie, who is the villain, is there one, right? Um, but I think that that scene is so good at showing that these characters are both just really fucked up in their own ways, and maybe he's worse. I don't know. It's kind of up for discussion. Well, I think he definitely is, right? And I, I also think that that, um, that scene benefits from the historical context of noir, right? Like, it's straight up wild that the protagonist killed the femme fatale in this movie. She's the femme fatale, right? The whole point is that the dame is supposed to get the main guy in trouble. In this movie, he basically takes the dame story and runs with it and makes it his own, to the point where he's committing these murders for his own edification more than for her to the point where he ends up with the power over her, which is something that's never supposed to happen in noir, right? The femme fatale is always supposed to have, if not the last laugh, she's supposed to be undone by her own hubris or by her own, uh, something, right? Which she only is in the sense that she actually thought Walter Neff was capable of loving her. When in fact, he's a cold-blooded murderer who's more interested in his plan than he ever was in her in the end. Yeah, it's it's like if she has an undoing, it's it's naivete, which is not quite 
in lockstep with a whole lot of noir. Uh, Aaron, I wanted to pivot. So if you got a thought around that, um, I'll kind of a small half pivot. I'll, yeah, I'll just say that the kind of the I think the last tie-in I'll do to to sorry wrong number. Um, I mean, a lot of kind of earlier noir films and, and texts and whatnot um, are often the last thing that you could maybe call feminist. But I often think that there are at least interesting gender politics. I think that similar to uh, Stanwyck's character in Sorry, Wrong Number. I think that, if anything, we are supposed to come away slightly empathetic to the character of Phyllis Diedrichson here. I think that kind of the the end of her backstory maybe undoes a bit of that. I don't think that's even necessarily a negative. Um, but similar to the character that Stanwyck played uh, in that other film is a character that is trying to uh, kind of claw her way up in life and gain kind of a greater uh, a place in life um, due to the only way that she can. And she's a character that is defined by who she is and who she is married to. Um, I think that we, we don't have that for Walter Neff, like Walter Neff, like, yes, he would get money out of this. Like there is money in the double indemnity clause and he would hypothetically split this with Phyllis. Um, But he is a very successful insurance salesman, right? Like he's not rich, but he is well enough and he doesn't need to do this. Um, and I think that that is another like differentiating factor between them is that she has a a distinct motive um, that may, is flawed, certainly, but at least kind of makes sense. His motives are um, I- entirely personal and not necessarily professional in the grossest way possible. Right. Yes. Yes. That's it. Cool. Uh, Griffin, I really don't want to squeak out anybody's thoughts here. So you run with that. Oh, well. I had a few. Now I'm I'm trying to prioritize, but I just say, hey, hey, hey. I did. I didn't say anything. Just go. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, I mean, just before we do pivot away from like the morality. I mean, I, I don't know how you could like ever. I'm sure we'll continue talking about the morals or morality of these characters in this movie because that's like all that's what it's all about. But just the way it reveals different levels of morality, even for characters who have decided they don't care about being good anymore, like is what also jumped out at me this time, especially like um, they've done away with the idea that they're good people and they don't care. They've decided they don't care. And, but even still like different levels of wrongness and rightness emerge for them over the, like at the end of those gunshots that I guess I was reminded of this because you were talking about the gunshots and like they are, they, they felt so shocking to me and it's so fucked up. And it's like, these people have already committed a murder together. That's all they've been talking about the whole time. So why are these gunshots like blowing me away? But it just felt even worse. And then you'd wonder why that is like, that's what I felt like was really working for this movie. And I just watched in preparation also the movie that Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck did together uh, prior to this, Remember the Night. And I was just struck by that because she plays like a, a small time hustler and he's a prosecutor and they, they fall in love. And it's such a sweet natured and very funny comedy. I, I really loved it. And it's all about him falling for her, even though she he knows she's a criminal, but like she's a criminal that's not so bad. And it's about how uh, the, it's like about the levels of morality for people who are decidedly good. And like, you know, morality can still be a complex thing if you're if you're genuinely both really good people and everyone in that movie is basically a good person. And this is felt to me like the, <laughs> opposite. the exact all, opposite, the exact opposite. They're all horrible. And yet it's still complicated. Like just being horrible doesn't make things simple, you know? Yeah. It, you can, you can all be horrible and it can still be like categorically 
like a breach of the genre itself that Walter Neff blows away uh, Phyllis at the end. And it can still be shocking because I totally agree with you. Uh, I knew that was coming and still when it was coming, I was like, holy shit, I can't believe that that just happened. For sure. Uh, Cody, I want to get back to something that you said in your intro, which was about the sort of the tourism of the affairs of this fractured family. I assume you're talking about between Neff and is it Lola, the Dietrich daughter? Um, I was initially thinking of just Walter's uh, and Phyllis's engagement. Um, the Lola edition is, uh, I guess, also a you know a, a part of that, um, though not one I had I had initially considered. Um, I guess did you have thoughts on Lola specifically, Jason? It just felt strange to me how close he was becoming to her. It it was almost like there's a scene where that montage scene after, um, uh, after Lola comes to. Walter and says like, I remember what she did to my mother and how she was the nurse at, you know, when my mother died uh, and, and he's afraid that she's going to spill the beans on the whole thing and, you know, attract attention. Uh, And he like, he seems to go really, really far toward, you know, getting good with her and getting good with her to make her comfortable and like keep her from spilling the beans. But just in such a strange way that when you said like the tourism of the fractured uh, like aspects of this and elements of this family. That's what jumped to mind was like how doggedly he was pursuing keeping Lola quiet. And then eventually she just like falls off the map in terms of the plot. But that to me, like, I guess the motivation that kicks Walter into the whole thing uh, is, you know, explicable enough. He's a greedy, no good bastard. Uh, but then how far he goes to protect the secret with Lola. It's like, sure. It's just an increasing level of discomfort, uh, for the audience, but like for me, it, was, it turned really, like, frankly, creepy. Yeah, you're totally right. Um, and I think, I mean, every it, it all goes back to the the morality uh, of these this movie and these characters. As much as I hate to bring it back to that, everybody here has illustrated that um, super well. Um, and I think um, Lola as a character, and I guess that family in general is yet another good illustration of that. Um, the fact that Lola. Um, and her stepmother, right, Phyllis? Um, they're all in, or, or both of them rather, are their own ways um, victims of the quote-unquote system that they're in, um, the engagements with uh, uh, Phyllis's husband, and then that guy, um, Nico, Nino, uh, Nino Zacchetti. Um, and there's a certain, I think somebody here, uh, I think Griffin earlier used the word inevitability, um, and that is like... That is a, a term that sung and stuck with me when I was watching Lola's, uh, her kind of arc, you know, the C or D plot or, or however you want to label that. Um, she she felt like such a tragic character in the fact that Neff pivots to being the character to suppress her um, is uh, it's it's a good turn for for Neff's character to take. I mean, as his function as a character goes, Um this movie, I, I sort of waffled with how I felt about this movie, truly believing that like Neff is uh, a really big piece of shit or just like a little piece of shit, or if Neff is the quote unquote hero of this movie. Um, and again, that's that's been brought up by various people here. But I, I think Lola's place in the movie sort of confounded me for a little bit. Um, I think in the in the later acts, um, it made it made more sense uh, for me anyway. I am I am slightly on board with the defense of the placement of uh, Lola's character in the story. 
I got to say, though, man, anything involving Nino Zacchetti just sucks so much in this movie. I like this movie a lot, but the whole Nino, Nino Zacchetti like, plot line is just terrible. Am I alone in thinking about this? It's like easily the worst part of this movie to me. I think it's just like just so bad uh, and like, like so random. Yeah, it's like the only part of the movie that I didn't remember when I rewatched it. I was like, oh, yeah, there's sure. this fucking like Nino Zacchetti, first of all, just the most uh, like... A stereotypical name for just like a kid up to no good, you know. That's number one. Real, real type. Yeah, yeah, it's a real greasy, real greasy dude. Um, and I don't know. It just feels like so random. I, I understand that you need Lola as a character in order to fill in uh, Phyllis's backstory, but like something about that dude's place in the story just just feels bad to me. I don't know. It, it feels it feels like a like a hangnail from the novel, right? Which is also kind of one of the issues is that I think this movie is just like almost exactly thirteen minutes too long, right? It's just like a little too slack, and I feel like that's kind of the the Zacchetti phenomenon a little bit. Um, Zacchetti I do, phenomenon. Yeah, I do really like uh, what Cody said about Lola and how this movie is so much about how even when women are victimized and given arguably um, justifiable cause to pursue um, their sort of, if not murderous ends, then their their self-defensive sort of like uh, um, grasping ends it defaults back to being about men and their egos and their professional relationships with one another. I mean, you look at the scene where like, so fucking Walter Neff guns down Phyllis in cold blood. Then he does a good turn for Nico for absolutely no reason. And then he goes and he has a sort of like bittersweet, cute send off with his work husband. It's like that dude's a fucking murderer, a double murderer. And, like, he gets to have this sweet scene, and he's set up as the protagonist of this story for the full purpose of making us believe that he is the character that we're supposed to see this story through. That's sort of, like, the main turn of this story is that we're supposed to think we can identify with Walter Neff so that when the knife turns and it's revealed that he's a sociopath, that it's scary to us, right? Because the call is coming from inside the house. And it's really interesting that both Lola and Phyllis end up being as sympathetic as they are, even as they are characters who have agendas of their own. And I, I get that. Um, and I think I agree with that. And I think that's a really good way to sort of rehabilitate Lola's and her positioning in this story because it's definitely um, parallel, I think. Well, and that's why the structure matters so much is that you would just, you would not, you, Walter would lose you so fast as a protagonist and if you didn't know that he was fucked. Like, that's the only thing that makes him... Uh, uh, makes you able to sympathize with him even a little bit. But I just wanted to get the order of things near the end there with Nino clear, because this was something I was thinking about. I, You said that he killed her and then told Nino to scram. I think it's the other way around, but I might be wrong. But either way, that was something that I would made me very confused about that, but actually interested. Like, I think there might be something really interesting in there is that Nino is put, he seems like a totally superfluous or like lame character or whatever, but he's put in there as an out, right? Like as someone it could be pinned on along with her instead of Walter. So you'd think that he would just be able to, to like, just stay away from the situation and he might be able to get away free. And she, right. fuck? Yeah. but then he shows up. And so that, Tell me what you think about that, because I I couldn't really square that, but it's interesting. Yeah, 
I, I definitely thought that the the Zacchetti bit at the end was like a slightly um I, I think it was kind of the the last act of a man who knows that he is either going to be executed or going to make it to you know Mexico or across state lines wherever he ends up fleeing to. Um I think it is seen as a I think it is seen as a, an attempt at a positive act, like a, hey, this ended up this way for me. It doesn't have to for you, um, uh, you know, a man recognizing. Uh, I think that's what Neff wants it to be. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 yes, I think that that is also maybe what the film is going for. I don't know. Uh, Harry, do you have a, another take there? I want to hear what Jason has to say. Yeah. Oh, no. Uh, no, I just wanted to clarify. It is that he kills... Uh, yeah. Uh, sorry, he kills Dietrich first, and then Nino sh- shows up at the door, and he says, "Hey, don't go in. Do me a solid. You know, just call Lola and get out of here." Um, yeah, which you know, order of events, order of events notwithstanding, like uh, that to me a little bit like what Aaron was saying. It, it's sort of like, um, in my estimation, he is like he knows that he'll be burned for the murder if Nino finds out, because obviously Nino and and Ms. Dietrich were working behind his back, so. Like that's his last ditch effort bullet in his shoulder. You like he's bleeding out maybe. I mean, but I'm, that's way more plot heavy than I was prepared to discuss this movie. Yeah. I kind of saw it like the Neff is like so full of ego. He's a salesman. He's just like part of trickery is like his whole game here. Right. But the fact that he like actually got shot at all, like maybe he didn't fully expect that, um, that Diedrich would, kind of come against him though he didn't have suspicions maybe or maybe he just went there specifically to murder her and not because he had doubts about what she her end goal was going to be but I guess I'm also curious to think about how uh what Keyes has the whole line about how like you should be a claimsman because you are a surgeon and it's full of drama and you're also a doctor and a bloodhound and he just like rattles off all of these different things but he also says that you're a, a judge, a jury, and a confessor. And I, I sort of think that's saying like, oh, well, maybe I am this thing that Keyes wants me to be. Maybe I'm not just the, the salesman who like cares about a paycheck or something like that. Oh, that's really interesting. So you think that in the end, he tries to rehabilitate himself and his identity in that way? Perhaps. I mean, it like otherwise, like Griffin said, I can't really square why he would give it up because he could have just put the blame on Zacchetti. Right, exactly. Um, during that same scene, there's a really great line uh, where Keyes is rattling off all that stuff, and he says to, to Neff, you're too good to be a salesman, and Neff responds, no one is too good to be a salesman. I feel like that's like the fucking, like, there's nothing more ridiculous than a man chasing after his hat line of this movie is like no one's too good to be a salesman has such like a double terrible meaning to it uh and so i i'm thinking that that dichotomy between the um the claims adjuster or the claims um determiner i can't remember the the term um and salesman is definitely really like it's that's an interesting um dichotomy to discuss and maybe that does have a lot to do with neff and how he wanted to see himself which is it's so interesting right because it's like well like dog it's it's too late like this happens moments after you murdered a woman 
unless you somehow think that murdering a woman doesn't disqualify you from being that person, which is kind of what I was getting at in the first place, is that maybe that's how fucked these people are, is that they don't see her, like, they see her as such damaged goods that it's somehow possible for them to continue to be the people they want to be after gunning her down, which is really dark. I th- I think I have a slightly alternate take on the the, the conversation with, with Nino and that I think that at that point, Walter knows that he is done for, right? I think he knows who he is as a character. I think he, he knows that as soon as he decides to go to Phyllis's house and murder her. I think that the connection with Nino is that he sees Nino as someone who very easily could be him, right? Nino is somebody who is... Uh, kind of a troublemaker, right? But he he has this woman that he's in a romantic relationship with. Um, he's somebody who is prone to violence, not necessarily specifically violent, but somebody who could be violent um, and somebody who has been uh, kind of tricked in the same way that that Walter was uh, by Phyllis. Phyllis very specifically was kind of playing him along, saying that Lola was going out meeting with uh, some other guy and that, oh, she she didn't know who Lola was meeting with, but he was gone this day. Anyway, you can hang out with me. And so Nino Nino's rage starts building up over that. Um, and it's at the point where he is going to, uh, you know, with kind of the direction of Phyllis, go and kill Lola. And I think Walter sees that in him and says like, look, I'm done for this is not an entirely selfless act, but I need to do something here to make sure that Nino does not end up. Right. I am. He tries, he tries to save Nino or Nico. uh, And it's just very interesting to me and very appropriate that that's the choice he makes is to save the kid that looks like him. That like, I don't think it's identifies with. Yeah. I don't think it's selfless. I think it is. There's a lot about self-perception in there, but I, I do think it is kind of supposed to be seen as a generally scare quotes here. Good act in my opinion. And the, yeah. And this might be too obvious, more ob- like obvious, so obvious that it's not worth pointing out, but like the way that the movie communicates visually that, as you say, he's done for, um, really fascinated me this time when he gets on the train dressed as the man that he just killed hobbling with the fake broken leg. And like it immediately calls to memory the, the opening sequence of the shadow of the crutches walking towards like, um, that is so great. It's just fucking great. And like, and you realize that when he assumed the form of a dead man, he knew that like he was dead or in, in some way he knew or we knew or, you know, it was it was it was meant to be. Uh, and how how musically brilliant is that that score, particularly that like that main strain where like it sounds like coming dread like it sounds like something inescapable um the score communicates that theme that you're talking about where it's like that this movie is bookended by a man on crutches walking towards certain doom like it's it's that the score communicates that brilliantly um uh just two more things really quick which is uh one that um his murder of Dietrich was indeed premeditated. He says as much uh, during his confession. Um, and then second, it's interesting that we're talking about how he's sure he was um, 
fucked. There is either an irony there or a contradiction, and I can't decide which it is, but the last scene is all about him thinking that he's going to make it to Mexico, and obviously he's not going to make it, and Keyes tells him as much, and he's just hobbling out, but I did think that his characterization in that scene is really interesting, right? Where, like, maybe the irony is that he knows he's not going to make it, but he's still acting like he does, just to sort of highlight how these people always act counter to what they're actually thinking, but what did you guys make of that ending? Massive blood loss. I would have done it. I I feel like I could have pulled that off. Yeah, from LA to Mexico. Uh, Well, they moved the elevators a couple miles away. California, it's like right there, dude. You just go right there. Tijuana is like three hours away. You get there easily, no question. Tijuana is three hours away in 2020. In 1944? I don't know. Look, it sounds like you don't have self-confidence that you could get to Mexico. But I just know who I am. I just know who I am. I'm not not performing. Jason's not a salesman. I'm not a salesman. I am also no get, longer a salesman. Oh, I used Jenny. to work in sales. Hey, you used to work in insurance. I used to work in sales. Uh, you know, we are all of us tainted by capitalism. Yes. Oh, I was just going to say in the book, they do make it to Mexico with the help of Keys. And then they. What? They kill what? They, what? They kill themselves anyway. They, are they, you are you they, shitting me? No, I am not shitting you. They, who, who is who is they? Uh, Wilson, yeah, the, the two of them. All the characters who stand in for yeah. Wait, Do they jump off a train or a boat? I can't. It's one of the two. Keys also kills himself. No, Keys does not. No. no oh, okay. Them, the, he books their tickets for the boat, and unbeknownst, I don't know exactly the mechanics of how this actually happens, but. I believe he gets them both on the boat and they don't realize that the other is going to be there. And then, so they're like reunited after having tried to kill each other. And then uh, they're like, Oh, this is crazy. Let's, and then they kill themselves. Well, you know what? When, when you said that you had read a bit of the novella before starting, I felt like, Oh man, I should have done that. I'm a bad podcast host slash like co host. Holy shit. That, I don't feel bad at all. About no, not reading we that. should still feel bad. Griffin has absolutely embarrassed us in well, terms of preparation. No, I I, that's not what I wanted. But it, when you're the second guest on a podcast that already has four people, it's like you got to bring something. Otherwise, what do you? <laughs> so I, was, Look, I don't mean to point this towards Jenny, but Jenny appears to have not read the novella. I, you know, I'm just gonna say she it. also said she watched half of the movie again. <laughs> I. Hey guys, hey guys, let's, Listen, let's, let's she's stop just, this. This is her third time. She's, let's stop this. Let's not attack our guests. Uh, at, her point, Jenny, at this point. Jenny, I we do have a, The first half of the movie is the better half anyways. That so. is true. Stellar, stellar. It's very true, yeah. Uh, Jenny, as somebody who worked in insurance, how essential is it that this is a story about scumbag insurance people? Uh, well, it is, it's rather heartless. I had more of like the nitpicky mechanics of insurance to comment on in that... Um, <laughs> Uh, so I have a health accident in life, like license that is good through my, my birthday next year. So we'll, we'll see if I renew that. I have no need. But uh, when I had to get my insurance class, I had to do 40 hours in a room with some middle-aged men explaining like how they were shilling life insurance policies and what it used to be like. And they were always talking about how you need to have your check in hand and you need to physically deliver a policy to a someone. Otherwise, it wouldn't be um, in effect or whatever. So I, I did think that the fact that they're like, well, I mean, you gave the policy to him. He had it. So, like, of course he knew that he, like, took it out on himself. So, like, it, it was interesting that that was part of the, like, um, 
I don't know, like that was a, a more crucial point to hear that throughout the movie. But that, that's it for Jetty's insurance notes. Uh, yeah, we, we got we got to have a theme for that next time. We will next time we will. Wait, Jenny, just one more thing on that. Did th- did this ever happen to you? Uh, well, in the modern age, <laughs> insurance is sold online, so I don't know what to say about this. Jenny, if, if you don't improve yes or no, it's a yes or no question. And have you killed somebody? I don't know. I want to go back about how Griffin said how he's not an expert in murder earlier, and let's point. That was here. very curious. Yeah, that that does not sound like something that a non-murderer would say. I would say answering a lot of the questions you know. but also you're now you're now deflecting jenny which is also suspicious <laughs> we might be in this, is the, this is the double indemnity and like we we went in on a murder together and we know that we're kind of supposed to be caught so what better way to be caught than to go on a podcast and talk about this movie for an hour I'm going to well, buy you some boat tickets and then you're going to kill yourselves together anyway i was about end. to say there's no better place to announce and confess your uh, that you're a murderer <laughs> than a, than a nobody podcast nobody listens this. to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, he, hey, how come how come this movie seems to be so interested in the fact that like crimes are impossible to commit? This this movie has a very very like great opinion of insurance adjusters and uh, the cops' ability to solve murders. That was one thing that kind of stuck out to me is like the inevitability of this movie is founded on the idea that it's really, really hard to get away with stuff, which I always found kind of funny and maybe ironic. Back in an age when you, you literally could get away with literally every single thing. It's like fucking Assassin's on... Creed. If if nobody was in the alleyway yeah. and you stab some dude, it's it's done. You're done. You're, 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 you're out of there. You're walking a block away. It's like you're, you've got that guy's wallet. You could go rob okay, a I bank just, right now. I just, no I just want to point out that Cody and Griffin's hands shot up when this happened, so I'm expecting some really fire-ass commentary. Uh, mine is not that. I just wanted to clarify y'all are talking about a video game. Yeah, Assassin's Creed. That's right, Cody. It was also okay, a movie. Actually, a movie Batman. actually as well, so you should know that. Ooh, stay tuned. Okay, good to know. Uh, and mine was just to say that this is a very good point. Although I could, I was thinking about this watching it too, but except that I think murder is easy to get away with. It's the murder and then claiming the money. Like once you. That's right. They do always specify that. I don't even know if that's if they do, but if they do, it like makes it, that made it make more sense to me. Like if you're trying to capitalize on a murder, that's when it gets tricky. Yo, that's actually a really good point because that makes it even more like gross and cynical, right? Like, but like Neff does say repeatedly, like, "Oh, you're not going to get away with it if there's insurance involved, baby." Which is like, oh yeah, like like once money's at stake, then it's really tough to get away with. That's a great point. <laughs> And the last point. Yeah, I was going to say, that's, uh, is that is that where we're pinching off the final thoughts? Stop it. And also Jenny's hand is up, so no. Uh, I know that we're going to roll right into Cody's noties, which I am thrilled for. But I have I have one notie that we didn't get to, and I'd like to, to bring it up now. Hit so, that notie. I'm, I'm going to hit the notie right now. So they, one of the opening lines is about like, like murder smells like honeysuckle, right? And and Harry, you brought up earlier how he's just like really, um, it's really sensory. So I just Wikipedia honeysuckle because I don't even know what it looks like. And and what I found out was that um, 
it's an invasive species and its berries are typically poisonous. So it's like described as like being like a showy invasive plant that can like cover up like unsightly railings or walls or something like that. So like the, the idea that like, Holy shit. I don't know if this is in, intended to be this way, but that like honeysuckle is then in itself, like an idea of like, well, it smells wonderful, but like what's hiding underneath it and it shouldn't be here. And it like creeps and consumes. Ooh. So that, that, that's that noty. Thank you. I'm so you. excited about that noty. And I'm so mad at myself that that wasn't something that I looked up because that's so something that I am into. I uh, I've got a Jason's noty then before we get into Cody's noties. The, the uh, in in French culture apparently the honeysuckle uh, stands for fidelity, love, devotion, and spiritual vision. So sacré bleu. Take That's take beautiful. that. Sacré pou. Uh, this is a non noty thing from me. Um, Jason mentioned pinching off final thoughts, which I hate, uh, and I just said it again, and my mouth feels dirty. Um, we didn't talk about Barbara Stanwyck like at all. Um, so I did want to submit. Um, a quick thing um some of my favorite parts of double indemnity are when uh stanwick is in like this deep intense close-up um early on in her sort of like uh conversations with neff playing playing him like a fucking fiddle right um and then like sort of later on the close-ups change as she's sort of like honestly deliberating her options and then the close-up on her face as her husband gets fucking iced in oh that man car. that's so good she- She's looking wide-eyed, uh, like straight ahead, like not quite at the camera, but maybe at the camera, sort of. Her, her face goes through a few different, like, like transformations. She gives off this huge, like Wednesday it's sexual energy. It's, uh, it's, it's absolutely like, a sexual. Look. It's like the shadow of a smile, right? Like she never does anything that you could like directly point to that you could directly implicate as a smile, but you know she's smiling. It's so brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, and just to think about the fact that she and McMurray were chosen to sort of subvert audience expectations because they were both uh, comedy stars, and what she's able to do here is insane. It's, it's there are flashes in her eyes early early on in the movie um, before you realize how horrifying her character is. Which you're right, we haven't totally reckoned with, but I know we're running out of time a little bit, but. I think that might be a flaw of the movie is that he like has these surface motivations, but then there's these underlying motivations that are also interesting and she has surface motivations. And then her underlying motivations seem to be that she's like fucking crazy. Like that she, um, I, I, tell me if I'm misreading that. Cause it'd be a horrible thing to say if I was, but like, it just seems like she kills. She did this before and she'll do it to, to the next guy, which would have been him and him if it worked out, you know? Um, but the fact that she can communicate that so early on before the movie does with looks in her eye, uh, that flash like really fast is it's so impressive. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. And like, I think that that's why the fact that, uh, Neff is as terrible as he is kind of almost redeems her by proxy. Right. Because like, if she is crazy, like you said, then like there is some sort of shadow of motivation that her, her motivations were economic in nature or that, that she's sort of a survivor in the sort of like, like, and this is a very contemporary take. Right. But like the, the contemporary feminist read on her character is that she was doing what she had to do to get by. Right. She says she married into that home to have a home. Uh, it's, it seems like she maybe even axed the former wife so that she could have that 
because she just wanted that, which is like the sort of thing where it's like, that's the sort of thing we would expect from a, an evil male character. And so it's a subversion of expectations, but you're right. Like, like she doesn't seem to have, um, motivations that are quite as complex except the economic ones. Um, but I think that's, that's semi redeemed by the fact that she ends up being a tragic figure herself that sort of falls on Neff's, uh, sword. I do, uh, when watching this movie, I do remember the sticker above the coffee bar at the Hard Times Cafe in Minneapolis, Minnesota, that says, uh, husband abusive, try poison. And that's, uh, that's her character. Shout outs to the, shout outs to the Hard Times, I guess. I love Hard Times, yeah. Never been. Uh, or maybe I have. I don't pay attention. Uh, I think we are ready then for a final segment. Uh, unless anybody wants to correct me on that. No, I think it's time. It is time. Uh, Harry, you want to you wanna help me welcome in? I would in? love to. Would anybody else like to join us? I think everybody I'm knows demo- the, I'm, demo- I'm democratizing Cody's noties. Egalitarian noties. Wow. A uh, bunch of cowards get, and cads. No, let's, let's no volunteers. Let's just, uh, go for it. Yeah, I think it's time for <gasps> Cody's, Cody's noties. Woof, gentlemen, uh, but warm welcome, uh, as always. Thank you for that. Um, I felt, you know, with, with this uh, with this many um, wonderful, beautiful guests uh, on the show today, uh, I couldn't let us out of here without doing uh, another uh, installment of Trilibs, uh, which for those here and for those uh, who may be listening at home or out in the world, uh, if you're not familiar, Trilibs is our attempt at uh, bringing to life a new version of the famous popular Mad Libs game. Um, what we're going to do is go through each uh, lovely speaker here one at a time, uh, fill in the blanks, uh, complete a, a story that's, uh, in this case, vaguely noirish uh, in fashion, uh, modeling the movie that uh, we watched and discussed today. Um, so with that in mind, um, I will, I'll go through this in uh, reverse alphabetical order, uh, uh, by first name. Um, so the order will take is Jenny, Jason, Harry, Griffin, Aaron. Um, as long as nobody has any, uh, qualms with that, we can, uh, get started here. Hey, can I just say every time Cody criticizes our singing of Cody's noties and it hurts, it hurts, man. Like we I never created this theme song for you. All right. I ne- Jason I ne- and I, we, we bring it every single time. Nobody joins us. And you still, you give us that woof. You give us that. Wow. Fellas. And- all right. You know, Harry, this is not about you. This is about Cody's noties. It is indeed about Cody's noties. And, and he's, he's, he doesn't know how to process the true appreciation he has for the work that we do. So I, I've accepted this. Uh, Jason is eternally correct. Um, and also I'm not criticizing the quality of your singing. It's always the timing that I'm, uh, either impressed by or, or blown away by. In a Listen bad way. again, there are two reasons why COVID needs to end. One is so that Griffin can snap off of my face. And two is so that Harry and I can finally be one voice in the Cody's notice theme. I don't think the snap off the face bit was recorded. <laughs> I, it does not matter. I don't it does not matter. Anybody- That'll be a Thanks for making it not nice. Cody, yeah. take it away. Yeah, uh, first up here, um, Jenny, uh, what uh, I will need from you, if you please, is a surname. Uh, Wiggle Smith. Wiggle Smith? Yes. Okay, thank you. W- w- uh, Wigglenium? No, this this was not your contribution, Jason. Thank you. Uh. 
Thank you for stalling as I do. I, I had to I chase on somebody as I was chastened. <laughs> Perfect. To, to feel um, whole again. Jason uh, chastens. Speaking of Jason, Jason, from you, I will need an activity. Podcasting. You would pick that one. What I married you, uh, Harry. From you, could I please get an adjective? Chastened. Um, I went to public school. Can I get a spelling on that, please? That was a uh, okay. Just as okay. soon as I C-H- type it in, my friend. Uh, C-H-A-S-T-E-E-N-E-D. Oh, okay. Yeah, never mind. I got that. I'm smarter than I think. That's what I learned today. Um, <sighs> perfect. Uh, this brings us to Griffin. Griffin, from you, could I please get the name of somebody on this episode right now? Aaron. Yourself, man. Go. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. I always do myself, but that's uh, that's nice. It's nice. <laughs> uh, that's something we already know, Aaron. Um, perfect. Uh, that was one for the adults. Next up, uh, Aaron. Speak of the devil. Uh, hey, you, could I please get a type of crime? Uh, murder. Yeah, going with murder. Very appropriate. All right. Moving right along then. We are back to Jenny. Jenny, from you, could I please get a number? Uh, 14. 14. Good even round number. Uh, Jason, from you, could I please get an increment of time? One week. All right. Next, I need a type of weather from Harry. Uh, sleeting. Sleeting. Good, good, uh, deep cut. Um, well done. Griffin, uh, from you, could I please get an emotion? And then after that, could you, uh, say an emotion out loud so that I can put it in the tribal exercise? (laughs) Um, sadness. That's what I would have picked too. Oh boy. Uh, next up, I believe it is Aaron. Um, okay. Aaron, from you, could I please uh, get a type of bodily action or reaction? Uh, <laughs> and then could you do one for the podcast? Like, say uh, one aloud for the podcast? Uh, vomiting or no? Excellent. Um, yummy. Uh, all right, back to Jenny. Uh, Jenny, from you, could I get another number? Uh, let's go for 52. Jenny's numbers. That's, uh, we got so many jingles to work on. It's impressive. Uh, Jason, from you, could I please get, oh, wow, the, uh, Jason, uh, could I get a musical artist, please? Uh, listen to Crossfade. Uh, oh, also, boy, uh, could you. Jason does on the side. Blink-182. So maybe don't listen to Crossfade. <laughs> Uh, I, <laughs> Maybe you could go ahead and skip that one. So the record shows uh, when I typed it in, I um, did not capitalize B in Blink-182 because that's the way they like it, right? Thank you. Thank you. That is the stylization. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Perfect. you. Uh, from Harry, could I please get a catchphrase or expression? I'm going ghost. Ooh, another deep cut. Well done. Yeah, that's from uh, Danny Phantom from the Nickelodeon show, Danny Phantom. Yeah. 
gotta catch them all because he's Danny Phantom or however that goes. Uh, Griffin, a body part, if you please. Elbow. You didn't pick ankle. Sorry. <laughs> I think I'm through with ankles for a lifetime after watching this movie. Um, I'm interested in what kind of jewelry could go on an elbow. You could get an elbow pierced, probably. That's true. You can pierce anything uh, with enough determination. <laughs> um, yikes. Uh, Aaron, uh, from you, could I... Uh, I feel like Aaron always gives the weapons. Um, I could be... Ooh, mis- nope. That's Aaron. not fair. Let me do it. You need a weapon? Yeah. Uh, a, a weapon, please. Uh, can I get a, a halberd? I would have gone uh, with halberd. a quatar. For the for the record, oh, that's not as good as a halberd. So that's why that's why I do the weapons. You know, uh, public school me guessed at the spelling of that, and I think that'll work. Um, also, by the way, Harry saying that's not fair is the saddest I've ever heard anybody say anything about anything. So thank you for that. Um, we are back to Jenny. Jenny, from you, I also need a body part. Uh, I'm gonna go with uh, earlobe. You got earlobe. mad at me for not saying ankle. Well, we're past that now. Yeah, yeah. The time is now. Jason, from you, I need a vehicle. Hmm. A what? What kind of car is Harry's? It's a Toyota. I need Harry on this one. It's a, it's a Highlander. Toyota Highlander. Oh shit! We're going in. We're going in the Harry Mobile. Let's go. Uh, no, we're actually going ghost, um, as it was previously mentioned. Uh, mentioned Harry, uh, from you, I need a a type of furniture. An ottoman. A good vampire weekend song. Um, I promise. Best empire too. Ooh, ooh, well, hot take. A lot of good jokes. Uh, I personally don't think there are any good empires, Jason. But I guess I'm different. Uh, speaking of things that are different, um, something we haven't asked for yet, uh, Griffin, could I please get a type of decoration typically found in a home? Um, I might need help here. Go seasonal, bro. Go seasonal. Holidays coming up. Oh, oh, uh, an ornament, a Christmas tree ornament. That's amazing. Um... Aaron, back to you. Uh, could yeah. I please get a two-word phrase? Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Um, another, that is another deep cut. Uh, we are so close to the end, I swear. Jenny, uh, from you, I need a noun for you, please. Pretzels. Excellent. Wow, she picked the best noun. Yeah. <laughs> You've already won. Uh, Jason, uh, a a place. Home. Alrighty. And okay. The the final the final entry, the final space that needs to be filled. Harry, from you, I need the name of a movie. The mask, starring Jim Carrey. Please have please the starring use, please Jim use, Carrey. Yeah, yes. you have to please include that. Starring Jim oh, Carrey. Yeah. I wouldn't do it any other way. Those are the rules. All right. Um, I'm doing a quick scan just to make sure I didn't fuck anything up. This feels like a lot of spaces. Um, hopefully this will be a good investment of our time. Um, but without further ado, um, here we go. <clears throat> this message is for Detective Wigglesmith. 
If you're listening to this, it means I'm either podcasting somewhere or I'm dead. This was supposed to be straight down the line. My alibi was chastened and cleared by Aaron Grossman. Nobody was meant to get hurt. Nobody of importance, anyway. But I guess when you deal in murder, you pay for what you get. It was 14 weeks ago when it was sleeting something fierce. I never get sad before a job, but for some reason, I couldn't keep from vomiting. Maybe it had to do with the 52 hours I slept that night. Maybe it was because of the Blink-182 song playing on the radio that morning. Maybe it was the way the neighbor kid shouted, I'm going ghost, to me as I left the house. I just knew in my elbow that something was off. Should have known better than to murder on a lousy hunch. All I do know is that when I finished the deed, uh, er, is that I finished the deed, rather, and when I turned around, Aaron Grossman was standing there with a halberd pointed at my earlobe. I managed to get away, but not before Aaron Grossman clipped me. I got into my Toyota, uh, Toyota Highlander and found my way home, or rather, what was left of it. Someone had paid a visit. My ottoman was torn to pieces, my ornaments were pulverized, and someone carved, oh no, into my living room wall. So now, I find myself here, telling you my story, Wigglesmith. Blood's leaving me faster than a pretzel leaves home. I don't know who'll get to me first between you, the doctor, or Aaron Grossman. Until then, I'll be here, sitting on my floor, watching my Blu-ray of The Mask, starring Jim Carrey, until my time comes. The end. That was uh, <laughs> that was the story of me after I uh, badmouth Barton Keys as played by Edward G. Robinson. Uh, that will be you, motherfucker. I'm coming. I'm going to fuck up your ottoman so fucking bad. Breaking quarantine rules just to come murder you in your apartment. I think you could get a halberd that's six feet long. Yeah, easily. Oh, yeah, they're they're got to be usually taller than that. Yeah. Thank you, Cody. What what does everybody think that going ghost feels like? I can't say on the Probably podcast. It feels a lot like watching Jim uh, Jim Carrey star in The Mask. Something along those lines is my guess. That's the correct answer. Uh, thank you very much to our guests, Jenny and Griffin, for joining us once again. We would love to have you again sometime. I, this is a poor outro to the episode. I'm just trying to get I mean, you guys again, in Again, Griffin, you've been on twice now, so the sheen is sort of worn off because the third, <laughs> the, the third appearance is not nearly as exciting. But uh, nonetheless, we would love to have you. Yeah, that's true. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so where can people find you? Do, you? do you even want to say? I guess both sure, of you. Sure, yeah. On Twitter, at Griffin underscore F-I-L-L, Griffin Phil. His tweets are very good, folks. Just wanted to point that out. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and you can find me on the internet, Ackerson Jenny, on Twitter, Letterboxd is the reverse Jenny Ack. You'll figure it out. Jenny wow. also very good on Twitter. But less... Uh, you only come through like once every week and a half with a tweet, but it always bangs. I, I tweet and delete a lot, so I actually don't follow. Okay, well, uh, a lot of mixed messaging here. So fo- don't 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 follow Griffin. Do follow Jenny, but only check once every ten days. It seems to actually get content there. Uh, but you know, you'll, you'll find her. Uh, her reputation precedes her. Uh, this has been our episode about Double Indemnity, a 1944 film that uh, was going to be playing at the Trilon. Uh, of course, it is now closed for the COVID-19 pandemic as it reaches another upswing. Uh, if you can, find ways to support the Trilon at Trilon.org. You can become a founding member of the Trilon Club. They have a bunch of cool merch available. And I think you can just kick them some bucks when they uh, suggest a movie that you'd like to see at home, maybe. Um, but if you do go anywhere at any time during this whole thing, please wear a mask. Do what you can to try and limit the spread. Uh, don't be a jackass. 
Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Once again, that was Double Indaphnity. Uh, I'm Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I've been Harry. You can find me at Shitaki Harry. Uh, I'm Aaron. Catch me playing as Kratos in uh, Season 5 of Fortnite. And you can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. But once again, I am on hiatus. Uh, be back soon, though. Now get out of here before I throw my disc at you. I love you, too.